Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch. This is the podcast where I dine with the most delightful of dining partners as we talk. The episode was recorded as an in-for-lunch. I sent delicious food to my guest's home and we chatted over webcam. Today I have the pleasure of eating and chatting to an Iranian-born British comedian and author who's a regular on TV comedy panel shows, but likes nothing more than going on tour and doing what she does best, which is stand-up. It's none other than Shappy Sandy. I didn't ask... You know, I just introduced you to my girlfriend. When you introduced me to your boyfriend, I didn't usher you off into a corner. Yeah, I could kiss him. I couldn't suck him off. You just wouldn't say that to me. Hello, Shappy Core Sandy. Hello, Jay Rayner. How lovely to see you again. Very nice to see you. One of the things I came across was a column from 2017 where you came out as vegan. Oh, Gosh, yeah. <laughs> Which was slightly terrifying because I had already ordered the food according to another set of dietaries that had already been been sent. Should we just establish this from the beginning? You're no longer quite as vegan as perhaps you once were. I'm not a uh, strict vegan at, at okay. all. So if I go to somebody's house and they offer me something non-vegan, I don't refuse it or flag it up as a dietary requirement for me it's for environmental reasons okay well that's that's kind of useful so the the food today has come from a restaurant in the central town at fleming's hotel called orma which is quite fancy so you should be surrounded with some takeaway bags and stuff and um yes i got them to number the boxes so i could tell you exactly what you've got oh excellent so if if you go looking for box number one you should find well, tell me what you can see. Box one, and it comes with sauce. So what you've got from Orma is yellowtail ceviche, which is, uh, you know, yellowtail tuna, thinly sliced. It should be sort of cured in a bit of lime juice and whatever. There's some avocado, tomato. And then there's a Vietnamese dressing, which is the extra the extra thing you've got there. Oh, this looks so yummy. Doesn't it? God, Doesn't what a it? treat. And I've got the, the Jersey crab. Uh, which comes with Granny Smith apple, daikon, gingerbread, and peanuts. So life is life is not too shabby for either. Life, of <laughs> life is pretty pretty good. While you dig into your your yellowtail ceviche, I want to ask you a question, which I don't think you've been asked before, uh-huh. even though you you like an interview and you've been interviewed by a lot of people. <laughs> so tell me, when did you murder your sister? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I explain? I've been watching loads of stuff and certainly some of your live at Apollo performances from 2010. At that point, you had a... It changed a bit. Sometimes she was 13 years old, younger than you, sometimes 14 years younger than you. Really streetwise, you don't have a sister, do you? Right, so there's two women that I have talked about in my shows. One is my cousin and the other one is my auntie Nadia. Now, auntie Nadia is only a year older than me. So we're like sisters. But for comedy purposes, when you're on a stage telling a joke, you've got to make it simple. They They get confused. Yeah, they get confused. I went to Amsterdam with my auntie. Yes, I have an imaginary little sister. (laughs) So did you just stop doing the material about your cousin, oblique sister? You know what they say, a writer in the family is a traitor in the family. And what I found was my family extended family and friends didn't really enjoy seeing fragments and exaggerated parts of themselves in my comedy routine 
no, I don't talk about them anymore. Do you mind if I go back? I know you've talked about it a lot, but it is an absolutely fascinating story. You grew up in Iran, in Tehran. Your dad, Hadid, is a a major writer. Does stand-up as well? Does some kind of comedy as well? Yeah, he started stand-up. Yeah, later on in life. Everybody's getting in on the act. Mm. Um, You didn't leave um, until after the revolution, um, which when it started was a nice popular people's revolution and and not a massive Islamist revolution. Is that right? We had left because my dad was a, you know, he was a writer, journalist, and he got this opportunity to spend a couple of years just working as a columnist for broadsheets. Anyway, he chose London. And so we were living here in Kensington, you know, my dad being a fabulous writer, well, very well paid. And so then he went back in 1979, joyous, because there was a new regime. And and it was just so horrific as well, because my mum's 19-year-old brother, my uncle, got shot dead. And he went back to Iran to sort of sort everything out for us all to go back. And then his officers got mobbed. And he uh, literally in one day had to just escape. Then we left and everything was seized. All our you know, house, money was gone. And then we um, applied for asylum here. It's not a unique story. He was on the, the death list, as, as were many journalists, writers, artists, politicians. So we skedaddled. I have a sense it's, it's the defining moment of your life that came very early that you, you talked about being an outsider and outsiderness being good for creativity. Mm. And you were an outsider in your own country because you'd, you'd been, you know, shoved out. And then you arrived and you were an outsider here. Is that fair? Yeah, it is. And because we were refugees and not economic migrants, the mentality of a refugee is very different because it's really important that you hang on to your language And you hang on to your culture because you think you're going to go home. I was four by this time. So my dad made friends with all our English neighbours. He had tons of parties. And I started to get more and more English. I remember not being able to speak English. And that was horrible because I love speaking. And so I, did you feel um, mi- uh, literally misunderstood that people didn't misunderstood. understand? It? I remember, God, this is this is childhood trauma coming out here. Never mind the terrorist attempt on my dad in 1984. Before that, when I was about five, the teacher at the end of the class would always let one kid sit on her lap and sing a nursery rhyme. And it was my dream to be the kid that sang the end of the day nursery rhyme. And she said, Did who, it ever happen, Shappy? Well, Did it ever she happen? said, who would like to read? Who would like to sing Bar Bar Black Sheep? And she said, Chaparac, would you like to sing it? And I muddled up yes and no. And I went, no. And she went, yeah. oh, okay. And she let somebody else do it. And I, and I cried. And what I found out through some therapy, it was about that point where I realized that when I'm frustrated and misunderstood, whether it's in a row or literal language I cry that was really horrible not knowing English and then um, I did and then I did because kids learn pick up languages and then I became obsessed with it obsessed with being English obsessed with the Queen and Enid Blyton did you used to salute and everything did you stand up for the for the national anthem (laughs) oh wait I 
<laughs> there was a period of my life when I was about 11 when I knew all the verses of the national anthem. <laughs> it's really weird. Um, and then I just, um, I went to state schools in West London and at secondary school, the people who had a bit of um, streetwise now dropped their middle-class accents at my state, at my secondary school um, because, but I didn't. I started to really speak like this. Did you? Yes, I did. Because what I learned from a young age was that the posher you speak, the less foreign your parents seem. <laughs> so, She's just like one of us. Everyone's embarrassed about their parents. And this isn't a nice thing to admit, but I was really embarrassed about the fact that my 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 dad, my dad is a lot more foreign than my mum. <laughs> You know, right. he's just a for even Iranians think he's foreign. He's just very rambunctious. <laughs> he's very outgoing. Is this a stand up comedian basically complaining about their dad being too much of a show off? Yeah. <laughs> he used to steal my thunder. We were on the Isle of Wight ferry, and there was these big, meaty blokes with tattoos and skinheads. And my dad went up to them with his little chessboard and, You play chess? And I died. <laughs> I died. I was like, oh, my God, they're going to throw him in the water. But no, he got a whole chess tournament going. But there were other times, you know, when we got racism, when we got, like, bloody foreigners or, you know, people would try to cheat him or be rude to him because he's foreign. And if I'd said, excuse me, that's my father you're talking to, my, my poshness that I completely manufactured would trump whatever it was, whatever grief they had. It was this sort of thing that I had that to defend my parents, I had to sound really posh. As you ceviche, I'm, I'm asking you so many questions. I'm not sure you've actually got a chance it's to eat. It's so but. yummy. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I don't know which, it's, I've always wondered what I prefer doing more, eating or talking. It's so close. A lot of exiled families, and I think it's fair to call yours an exiled family, are. maintain memory through food. Um, mm. I am slightly obsessed with the Persian way with rice. Yeah. Um, was this was this a thing in your household? Were, were Persian dishes? It's one of those curious things. We refer to Iran. The only place we're allowed to use the word Persia is around the food. <laughs> yeah, the food and the empire. Iranian food is what makes me Iranian. Like when I eat Iranian food, I'm eating my life are there particular dishes yes okay speak to you the classic dish is korma sabzi which is um a herby lamb stew and that is the classic everyone's favorite but my personal favorite if i did celebrity master share i made aubergine and lamb john tarot said um something made me so proud he went yeah he had my aubergine he goes yeah yeah, Iranians are the only ones that can cook aubergine properly. And then he paused and then he went, um, and the Chinese, and the Chinese. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, you, you can have that. Um, I do think the Iranians and the Chinese, the only aubergines that I can accept. So it's slow cooked lamb with aubergine and split peas and various aromatic spices. Now we don't have uh, hot spices like cumin and turmeric and all of that. And the rice that we make, the puller, we have a different word for cooked rice. It's very different to uncooked rice. We have bedding. Can you describe that for anybody who doesn't really know what is so special about Iranian rice? Okay, Iranian rice is you parboil it and then you drain it and then you lay the bottom of your pan with um, saffron and a bit of oil, 
bit of salt and a bit of water and you pour it back in and then you heat it up. So your aim is to get the bottom of the pan crispy. So you get this beautiful, crispy rice cake underneath. So when you serve the rice, it's in a dome, fluffy, tender rice that you can separate every tiny piece and on it, a crust of tadig, which is the mm. crunchy rice. And that done right is heaven on earth. Can you do it? No. <laughs> and my mum watched, because my mum is a master. You know, she's one of those mothers yeah. that looks at something and it's a banquet. And she said to me, you're afraid of oil. Are you? I am afraid of oil. She goes, don't worry about your waistline. If you want to make tadig, you have to use oil where I put like I'd put lots of water in and a little bit of oil she goes you know don't make it oily don't make it dripping with oil because that's a, such a no-no in Iranian cooking right. is to make something too oily like we cut every scrap of um, fat off meat I had a boyfriend who um was from uh, an old uh, mining town in Wales and he um I went to his parents' house for dinner and they had fat on their on their on the meat in their soup. Of course they did. Because of the climate that they lived in and because of the work historically the men did, you had to eat that. And I remember It was like, good for calories. Did you find it tricky? I I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was only 19. I'm much more chilled about fat on on meat. I'd never seen fat on meat before. Like yeah. It was. It's such a no-no in in uh, Iranian cooking. In fact, I wrote a book about when we came to Britain, and everyone who reads my book wants recipes. And without even realizing, half of my book was about food. We we ought to be. I won't dwell on this, but just to be absolutely clear, at one point, your father was told by the police that there was um, he was likely to be the the victim of an assassination plot. Yeah, and you all had to do a runner. Where did you go, and how long was it for? We went to Windsor. Um, I mm. thought the Queen was going to look after us. I was so excited we were going to Windsor. How old were you at this point? I was eleven. The build-up was we had we had got so many death threats. We'd pick up the phone, and there'd be people saying that we want to kill you. We're going to kill you, and people would quietly tell my father, "Huddy, this is a very real threat." And the police warned us that they had uncovered a plot to assassinate my dad. Now that in itself is a huge story because it turned out that there was an, an informant within the Islamic Republic's government and it transpired that my dad's death order was signed by the Ayatollah himself. So this was serious. And um, they nice he took an interest. Well, I, you know, I, I do joke that my dad was like, oh, he knows me personally. I'm so <laughs> famous. My dad is a man who, he lost his own father when he was seven years old. And I think that um, apart from his talent, there is also a very great need for um, fame. I think a lot of children who lose their parents very, very young do look for something else, you know? And I think my dad's writing was massively a part of that. So the more more people knew him, the happier he was. So we then had to get in our car. I, think, I remember we had like a 10 minutes to pack. The Scotland Yard officers were standing in our flat while we packed to escort us out of London. I was terrified. And in our family, we joke about everything. 
that's our family culture. Like the darker something is, the more we joke. And looking back, we should have got done a bit more than that because it left us all with uh, some trauma and terror and fear. And that, because that's the job of terrorists is to fill you with fear. After that, things were never the same again. I lived in constant fear that we'd go to bed and men would storm in and kill us because we heard these stories. We were... We, we, but it did actually happen. Yeah, I mean, that happened. stuff was going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. It happened. It happened in Paris. It happened in America. It happened in London to other people that weren't as lucky as us. We knew we knew a family who were beheaded uh, in Iran because they had links with a group in London who were anti-regime. So this was a reality and life was never the same again. And um, it was well into my adulthood that I acknowledged that this this had really messed us up. You know, I was 11. So young. Hello, dear lunchers. A quick word about something rather exciting. It's a new range of out-to-lunch merchandise that has landed and it's ready for you to get your greedy mitts on. I've got it here. There's a smart-looking apron in rugged denim with pockets. From now on, I'll wear nothing else. A brilliantly made travel cup. We all need to drink on the go. Water, wine, put what you like in it. I don't care. I'm not your dad. And a beautifully soft tea towel so you can think of me while you caress your finest kitchenware. These are quality items, people. The kind of things that once you used you'll be dreaming of using again and again and branded with your favorite podcast too what's not to love to browse the range and purchase your heart's content head to outtolunch.backstreetmerch.com that's outtolunch or one word dot backstreetmerch all one word dot com get them while they're hot cold or tepid and do tweet me your photos showing them off too but now it's back to lunch Should we have a look at your box two? Yes. There are a number of box twos because there are some side dishes as well. Shall I tell you what's in there when you find it? Yummy. It's, um, this is from Orma. Is the spice cru- uh, spice crusted sea bass? Oh wow! With fennel and artichoke and a saffron orange dressing. Whoa! Do you know what this smell is incredible? I, I've got some caramelised pork belly with I've got cabbage and soy and peanuts and um, a caramelised onions. And then alongside, I've got, I've got you a couple of sides. One was the tender stem broccoli with flaked almonds and also some southern fried wedges with sriracha mayo. Oh, you That's can't go sound. wrong with wedges. Thank you for ordering the wedges for me. You see, one of the things I, I found myself thinking when I was looking at all of this and, and reading your story, and, and you've talked a lot about foreignness mm. and being different and being an exile and your dad being noisy and that being excruciating. Mm. All of that might, some people say, have led you to think, I want a quiet life. I want to go away and be quiet. I don't want... And, Shappy, you are many things, (laughs) but you don't shut the fuck up, do you? I mean, you're not quiet. You didn't shy away. You didn't run away from anything, even allowing for, you know trauma at secondary school and all that stuff hold fire one second Mm. while talking about your trauma and your what drives you so nice everything that i've been through in my life has led me to this sea bass this sea bass has been waiting for you with your name on it i think i'm a real coward i found um school terrifying everything about it i've had to overcome a lot of you i am talkative um but I've had to overcome a lot of shyness in the context of like being booked for things as a stand-up. 
and that identity, I'm really, um, I'm fine. But I went on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here and the the shy person I am really came back. Yeah. And suddenly it was like I was at school again with these really sporty, boisterous people who dominated every conversation regardless of whether or not they had anything to say. Did you become lifelong friends with any of the people you were in the jungle with? I'll always be really delighted to bump into Ian Lee or Jenny, uh, Jenny from Coronation Street. Um, the, the sporty, scary ones, they just, like, they weren't interested in talking to me at all. It was just all a bit sad. It was like, um, it felt like school again, where, you know, I'm not one of the, I'm not one of the sporty ones. I'm not one of the pretty girls. And so I'm just, just a, a log. I might as well have been one of the logs <laughs> for, for them. But it was, you know, I got to jump out of a helicopter. I got to swim yeah. in a wild lake. I got to abseil. Um, and, but, but, but what, what was really interesting about I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, it properly showed me what it takes to have ITV fame, like tabloid fame, um, it showed me what needs to happen because I knew when I got in there that the only reason I can stay in this show is if I create some kind of drama. I had a mantra. I refuse to argue with anyone, not even Rebecca Vardy when um, she was really mean to me. And also what the program did for me, it gave me such a deep and renewed love of stand-up comedy and the industry that I work in. And it took away all of my career anxieties. It took all of my... Why was that? What what was it that it emphasised oh, for you? Because it showed me Look. that the other side was ghastly. You have to just basically sit there and go, it is what it is, babe. At the end of the day, it's all about being like all these sort of empty platitudes. The endless So did you go into it thinking this might actually be the way to that huge I, ITV I, shiny floor profile? You know what? I'm not cut out for it. I can't be different to how I am. And I don't, I don't appeal to a much wider audience. I'm going to give you an example of something that happened to me. I had a few gigs in the diary, um, tour dates when I came back from Army Celebrity that they'd booked before I went. Yeah. And I did one like in the middle of nowhere. And this young couple were waiting to see me after the show. And when the young girl, she's about 20, came up to me, she was shaking and she was crying like I was Justin Bieber. Just the very fact that, like, there was not, it wasn't about me. And I just, I just thought I can't be Justin Bieber for, these, for, for this girl. When you were growing up and this idea of being a stand-up, who were you watching? Who were the people that you were watching thinking, I'd love to do that. I'd love to stand on a stage, tell jokes and make people laugh. Okay, so I watched Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy. I can't even begin to explain to you how much I loved what they did. And the idea of doing what they did was the same as watching a moon landing and saying, yeah, I want to do what neil armstrong does it was when alternative comedy happened you'd have been very young at i was that very point, young because... i was like 11 10 or 11 when the young ones and all that happened and um ben elton who is the one mm -hmm. person um i've never met and uh, in this industry that i've wanted to meet um but he 
Well, he left. He moved to Australia to avoid that. Yes, he did. A lot of people <laughs> moved to Australia to avoid me. Yeah, he just came on and and talked about a world which um, included me. In what way? These guys were. Um, they were young. They were clever. They talked about ordinary things, uh, like the, the classic Ben Elton thing about getting on a tube and wanting to get a double seat, double seat, got to get a double seat. That, to me, was intoxicating. I, and I just thought, this is the world that I want to belong to. I went to a comedy club for the first time when I was about 17. I went to the comedy cafe in Shoreditch. Like I can still feel my excitement now when I when I talk about it that I'm actually going to see a human being on a stage live, making people laugh, and and it was such a long time ago. There was a strippergram in the interval. Like this is how different it was. And then the an, an ironic no, an ironic strippergram or just someone who took the it clothes. It was really off. normal in those days. You know, you'd be in a bar, or a restaurant, or a house party, and they'd got all oh, the strippergrams here, and even on EastEnders doesn't happen anymore because we've got pornography now no one pays anyone to take their clothes off now it's not fun uh she came on and then a, a female comedian came on and i was like what women do this job that blew my mind and she got booed off stage before she even got to the microphone and that moment i thought there is no other job in the world that i would rather do it's like falling in love with an extreme sport. You know these these people that dangle off massive tall buildings with no gear? And you think, how can you fall in love with doing that? It wasn't seeing a woman get on stage and kill it in the room that made you think, I want to do that. It was seeing her die on her ass that made you think, I want to yeah, do that. Yeah, because she didn't actually die. She survived it because she got called back on. Some woman in the audience said, let the girly back on. I'd go to Covent Garden, and to me, the street performers were superstars. Any human being, right. no matter what they were doing, if they were standing up in front of people trying to entertain, I thought they were a superstar. And then I went back to school and I said, I want to be a comedian. And she didn't really say this, but I do this in one of my shows. And, and the, the careers advisor said, oh, that's lovely. I used to want to be a mermaid. So it just was not. Sorry. And I was so shy. I couldn't talk. I couldn't talk to boys. I was a real weirdo. And yet you were absolutely certain that this was something you wanted to do and clearly thought you could do. I'd, oh, it was like my yellow brick road. Like No matter what, I would stay on its path. You know, there's been people on the way that have to my face said to me you're awful you know you're terrible give it up why'd you do this and you can't be swayed by that attitude i get the impression you don't mind this process of being interviewed by people <laughs> you have the honor of having been literally the first guest on the guilty feminist yes podcast. i was i can't remember what i talked about on it you were very funny about how, say, women in same-sex relationships don't objectify each other in the way men think they do mm. it was a fascinating list it was terrific it was all it was all out there. Wow. I joke about my bisexuality as theoretical. I've only ever been out with one woman. I remember at university, like bisexuals were were laughed at. We were called like lipstick lesbians. I've come across situations where it comes up, it's got a really horrid reaction from straight women. Either they go Oh, you're not going to come on to me now, are you? Which is extremely vague, it's, isn't it? Absolutely. And and just feeling 
emboldened to discuss something about something really personal about you or 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 then talking about themselves and saying do you know what I could kiss a woman if she looked like Michelle Pfeiffer but I couldn't you know do such and such with her and I'm like I didn't ask you know I just introduced you to my girlfriend when you introduced me to your boyfriend I didn't usher you off into a corner yeah I could kiss him I couldn't suck him off you just wouldn't say that to me and then I had this one friend when I sort of came out as it were and it was literally like oh I've just met a woman I'm going out with her one of my really closest friends I've been friends since I was 18 and we've always like had sleepovers always slept in the same bed we were just sleeping together in the same bed and suddenly there was a finger up and down my back and she's like oh do you not want this I was like no <laughs> no you're like it's, it's just it's not because you're bisexual you're now up to entertain any any curious I person. think I think there is a corner of opinion and it's not an opinion I hold that um bisexuals are basically just greedy yeah there's actually a bisexual right. club called greedy is there? <laughs> I didn't know that. do you know what makes me sad is like I, I have a cousin who's bisexual and she's 22 and she thoroughly enjoys herself I couldn't do what she did when I was 22 because it was so much more taboo. And I think I pushed myself into heterosexuality because that was easier. I didn't know how to navigate LGBTQ, the gay world, as we you know would have known it then. Like I had gay friends and stuff. I was so terrified of liking a girl and then her finding out and telling me, oh, no, I'm straight, you pervert. It, th- there's a per- part of you, and it's a sort of internalised homophobia right. where I thought, well, I can be heterosexual, but then I've had so many crushes on women and I've not been able to say anything the way I would with a guy. Like, with a guy, I can feel okay going, look, I, I feel this way. Can we talk or whatever? And if if I if I'm rejected, I get over it. I'm like, oh, yeah, and they're normally very kind hasn't happened that often but they're very sweet oh I'm flat or whatever blah blah fine but I think with a girl it would a woman it it would just be so so hard and that's because of the generation that I I was in and I'm very very glad that things are different now should we have a look at box three it's dessert time do you like do you uh, do you have a sweet tooth do you have a sweet do you like puddings I love puddings this is so pretty Oh, look at that. Nice, right? That's a pavlova and a half. And if I'll see if I can hold mine up. that Mine looks dowdy by comparison. It's a treacle tart. It's, it's simple but, but effective. You have used your profile, or if not used your profile, just been restless enough to get involved in a lot of causes. You were involved in the refugee camps at Calais. Yeah. You are in the humanists. You've been out campaigning for political parties. Is it a compulsion to get involved? It's a compulsion. It has massively to do with my background. I know what it's like to be a refugee, to be a foreigner, to be in a family where there's no money. And so I don't have a reason to say no when I'm asked to do things. Although I do say no much more often now than I used to. You've you've written both a volume of memoirs and a novel. Mm. Could you imagine yourself just being... A writer at home. Stand-up comedy is a compulsion and it's one that for me is sated by skipping out to my local comedy club. 
When I'm on tour, I'm so quiet. But you can tell I haven't been gigging today for the last few weeks because I can't stop talking. So is that the thing when you get on stage, you're just letting it all out? Letting it all out. It's like bloodletting. It really is. It's like, oh, just I've got so, I need to make a connection with people. And now I've done it. I can be quiet. Thank God for that. I hope your your pavlova was so lovely. So yummy. Um, Shappy, thank you so much for agreeing to My do this. My absolute pleasure. I've always wanted to be asked to do lunch. this. So I was really delighted. All that remains for me to say is we scoff our truffles from Ormer at the Fleming Hotel. Shappy Cosandi, thank you for staying in for lunch with me. It's been an absolute delight. It's been my pleasure, Jay. Thank you. Well, it was lovely to catch up, virtually at least, with Shappy. I love the fact that her two favourite things in the world are talking and eating. She really is the perfect guest for this podcast. Today, our food was from Orma at the Fleming Hotel Mayfair, which has happily opened its doors again, but the food is still also available for collection and delivery. And if you want to line up more top table treats, well, please feel free to listen back to other episodes from this series, and then there's series one and two of Out to Lunch to get through as well. They are free wherever you get your podcasts, and we would love you forever if you gave us a glowing review and passed on the good word to friends and family. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Rosie Marotra. The producer is Selena Reem, and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, we'll be bringing you some tasty off-menu treats, those special bits we just didn't have room for the first time round, from season three. That's why I was finally legitimized when I was on the cover of Playboy. My dad was like, okay, I guess this is a real job. 